It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How much are you really paying in your taxes to regulate banks and the finance industry? The answer may be a lot more than you realise. Spending temptations lurk everywhere, but there are ways to keep your money plans on the straight and narrow. And finally, we sing the praises of a protection on payment cards that is little promoted by banks, but can be extremely effective for consumers. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm James Pickford, Deputy Editor of FT Money, and I'll be giving you this week's money news in downloadable form. First. Just how much are we paying to make sure the financial services industry doesn't break the rules? The cost of regulation and compensation through bodies such as the Financial Conduct Authority and the Bank of England's Prudential Regulation Authority is more than you might think. Taxpayers and the industry itself are stumping up billions of pounds to set and enforce the rules of a supposedly lawful sector. Paul Lewis, presenter of BBC Radio 4's Money Box and an FT Money columnist, has been doing some calculations of his own on the costs of regulation. He joins us over the line now. Paul, what do your sums reveal? Hi, James. Well, I started with the Financial Conduct Authority that you mentioned, and its spending in 2017-18 was more than half a billion pounds. Now, that's the chief regulator. But then you have, you mentioned the Prudential Regulation Authority. That's another more than a quarter of a billion pounds. Then if you add in the financial services compensation scheme, that's 400 odd million pounds in compensation and more than 150 million just to run it. And then, of course, there's the financial ombudsman service, nearly a quarter of a billion pounds itself. And if you add in all these things, you come to the extraordinary total of 1.7 billion pounds in 2017-18 just to keep the industry lawful, to compensate people who've been missold and to make sure that the rules are obeyed. And how does that compare with other, I suppose, costs in government? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's not a huge amount out of total government spending. But as an example, the National Crime Agency, now that deals with serious organised crime. It's the specialist unit of the police. That costs much less. It costs less than half a billion pounds, less than the Financial Conduct Authority. So the money we spend on that one agency to deal with the really bad, serious organised crime and terrorism is actually less than we spend just on the Financial Conduct Authority. And even if you look at a big police authority, 
the Metropolitan Police, the biggest one um, in Britain, that has a budget of £3 billion and a taxpayer contribution of £1.9 billion. So these are comparable figures for the whole of the policing in London with keeping the financial services industry on the straight and narrow. It's, it's, it's a striking comparison. Could you tell me a bit more about who pays the bills for uh, the regulatory authorities and for compensation to customers when, it, when it's due? Well, in the first instance, it is the industry itself that pays. It is levied by the Financial Conduct Authority every year to meet the costs. And many of them obviously don't like paying these levies. And one of the big costs of that is the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, £444 million paid out in compensation in 2017-18. And of course, if in the middle of the year, a number of mis-selling scandals have appeared, they can go back to the financial industry and ask for more. So in the first instance, it's the financial services industry generally that pays most of these costs. But of course, where does their money come from? (laughs) It comes from us. So every time we use a financial product, and I think all of us use some every year, the price of that has in it reflected the cost of regulation and compensation. The city sometimes does complain that the good guys here are paying for the mistakes or even the crimes of the bad guys. It seems a fair objection, don't you think? Yes, that is absolutely right. And I think it's particularly hard on financial advisors because they are the ones who bear the cost of a financial advisor giving systematic bad advice and then usually going bust um, or there's a big fraud involving financial advice. That levy comes back to the financial advice industry generally, so they have to pay for that. So the good guys are paying for the really bad guys who have conned or missold or misadvised people and often gone out of business. And it strikes me that one of the other figures that I added up was the cost of the fines which the Financial Conduct Authority levies. Now, it and its predecessors, since they've been around, have levied more than four billion pounds in fines, more than a quarter of a billion just in this year so far, 2019. Now, why can't that money, the bad guys, the fines on the bad guys who generally stay in business, be used to pay the cost, be used to pay the compensation for the bad guys who've gone out of business? So instead of the good guys paying for the bad guys, it'd be the the fairly bad guys paying for the very bad guys. And where does that money currently go, those fines? Well, it used to be kept by the Financial Conduct Authority and and spread around reducing its costs. But since 2012, it has to hand it over, less its cost of, of enforcement, to the Treasury. And I reckon, and there aren't any official figures on this, but I reckon the government has had about £3 billion since 2012 from these fines. And it has just kept that. It spent some on the NHS. It spent some on military, medical charities, that kind of thing. Now it just goes into the general pot of receipts by the government. So that money could be used, in my view, and I think in the view of a lot of financial advisors, to pay the cost of compensating customers, victims, if you like, who've lost, in some cases, tens of thousands of pounds. Paul Lewis, Moneybox presenter, thank you very much. You can read Paul's column in full in the FT this weekend. 
Companies spend billions trying to persuade us that by buying their product or service will transform or improve our lives, setting us on a route to happiness and fulfilment. Even if you don't believe these claims, the fact that we're surrounded by overt or subtle bids for us to shop and consume can influence our spending habits and, by extension, our ability to manage our money. Jason Butler, FT Money's wealth man columnist and a former wealth advisor, has spent most of his adult life talking to people about how they deal with money and has come to some conclusions about how to make sure these external influences don't get out of control. Jason, thanks very much for coming in. Hello. You've said in your column that we're now surrounded by marketing messages, not only on TV and billboards, but also through the internet, on your on your mobile phone and so forth. I don't think anyone would argue with that, but haven't we also got pretty good at ignoring them? Well, some people have and some people haven't, but we're all human. And there are lots of different cues that are going on, subtle cues that you're not always aware of. And in fact, all, all behavioural f- uh, finance research shows that even when we're shown where we're being influenced by something, a positioning, a framing, uh, something that happened before, uh, a message that was given, we refuse to believe that we've been influenced by external messaging. But there's a reason why billions, even trillions, is spent on marketing and sales and messaging and communications, because it works. Mm. So what do you suggest we do to make sure we don't get led astray by these these commercial temptations? Well, we've all got our own ways of coping, okay? And we all, as we will know, fall off the wagon and, you know, get sort of deflected and moments of weakness. We're just human. That's okay. We're not looking for perfection here. But what I suggest is that people develop their own sort of set of money rules or principles. And they can be a long list or it could be just a small number of things, but it's it's where you sat down and thought sort of some rules of the road that you assess decision-making and buying, often buying issues, against those rules or principles. So, for instance, you could have, you know, you, you never let your accessible cash go below a certain amount. Yeah. So in my example, I say I need 18 months worth of core living costs. But mm. you, that might be one month or you, it might be three years. Some people, it, that might be a, just a, something they want to aspire to. And they're going to get nearer to that. But it's still a rule that they want to achieve. So it's something that you can sort of assess. If you are thinking of buying that car that is a bit beyond what you think you can afford and you haven't topped up your emergency fund, you can check against the rules to see whether that decision you're making is getting you nearer or further away from what you said is important. So it's like an anchor point. I was intrigued by one of your rules, which is never borrow more than 60% of the value of an appreciating asset. Why, Why do you choose that one? Well, actually, the one before that, uh, James, is the more interesting one, is never never buy anything that's a depreciating asset unless you can buy it outright. Yes. And the reason why 60% of an appreciating asset is not because that's what everyone should do, because otherwise no one would ever buy a house. Yes. But it's what I do. So if I'm going to buy a property, or if I'm going to buy into a company, or if I'm going to buy into some art, or something that I think is appreciating in value, whether it's for intrinsic value, for my use but it's going to go up in value or I'm buying it for financial reasons, I personally would never borrow more than 60% because it means that if and when I make a mistake, I'm not going to end up with negative equity. And I have to think through that. Does it make sense? So when I'm buying a property, if I'm buying a rental property, borrowing 60% sort of insulates me against sort of not being able to the thing to wash its face if I've got voids or people or rent doesn't increase. So that's my personal route rule but but you might have different ones and so um you think it's possible that even to apply these rules when you're you're at the other end of the scale in terms of income and if you're low income and perhaps struggling with that these these rules still still apply to work 
I think the rules are even more important if you are on the margins financially. And I have been there. My mid to early to mid 20s, I was a train wreck. As I said to people, I put the O into overdraft. And if I had not developed those rules and they were the only thing that got me out of the problem, if I had not developed those rules for myself, then I don't think I would have seen any progress. And this is a really important thing. To get confidence with your money, you have to see progress and you need to feel that you're, you've got choice and that you are doing things for your reasons, not other people's. And that's really what the rules is about. It's about that intentionality. Mm. And there's a second part in your column where you talk about how people should figure out what, and the phrase you use is, what turns their money dials. And, and what are these money dials? And can you briefly explain that? Yeah, I mean, essentially, if anyone out there is a, is a pilot, they'll know that you can't possibly look at all of the instruments on a, on a flight deck. You're looking at a small number of instruments that give you an idea whether you need to go further and look more deeper at more information and make changes. And money dials is just really is a concept from coaching, uh, which I explain in the article. But essentially, it's saying distill down to the four or five things that you need to keep an eye on as a sort of early warning system. So yeah. just as they don't suddenly fly from Heathrow to New York and then say, oh, we're a bit off, we're here at Brazil, <laughs> they make course corrections as they go. And, and that's what so money exa- Examples of things that, you might, uh, that might set your alarm off? Well, me, it's the amount of liquid cash relative to my net worth. Okay. So I like to have a large amount of cash, not because it's a great return or it's a, a wonderful thing, but it's just because it gives me options. I'm never a false seller of any asset. Mm, good practical stuff. Thanks there to Jason Butler. You can read his column about how to reduce your financial stresses and strains at www.ft.com slash money. Now, Section 75 is the rather unglamorous name for a very nifty piece of financial legislation that has been protecting credit card users for over 40 years. Lindsay Cook, our money mentor columnist, has been looking into its benefits and how it works and the rather different level of protection you get uh, when a a debit card purchase goes wrong. Lindsay, what does Section 75 do? Well, it allows credit card customers, or it gives credit card customers, the right to claim money back if things go wrong. If um, the company they've placed an order with goes bust, defrauds them, or fails to supply, or supplies faulty goods. It's a contract that you have with the credit card company. They are as liable to you as the supplier. So you are protected, even if you only pay a pound on your credit card. I've known people who have booked a wedding and they thought, oh, I've heard a wedding venue's going bust. And they put a pound on their credit card because a wedding venue would surcharge them for using a credit card. And then everything else is on... And then it's an insurance for you. And you can go back up to six years with a credit card. And it's anything you buy between £100 and 30000 And it's been mm. going all those years. Now, if the £100 have been upgraded, it'd be something like £900 now. So when it started out, it was for expensive things you bought. Now it's for everyday things. Mm, that's fantastic. And what about debit cards? Um, What sort of protection do you get from those? Well, with credit cards, it's a right under the law. With debit cards, Amex, Visa, MasterCard voluntarily give you a chargeback cover, and that is anything over £10 for most of them. There isn't an upper limit, but you have to make your claim within a few weeks. And, you know, they it's voluntary. But it works. And in cases like when Land of Leather went into an administration, something over a million pounds was paid back to customers because they'd use a debit card to buy. It's so 
both cards are so much better than using cash. So where does that money come from if the company itself has gone bust? It comes from the merchant acquirers. And these are the people that sign up retailers, services, etc. And they process the credit card payments or the debit card payments. And if there is, they will always hold back a little bit of money to cover this so that if there is just a normal, it arrived, it's faulty and he won't repay me, then there's a bit of a cash that they can dip into and then just say, we've paid it, tough. But if a company goes bust, they begin to, or they see signs, they begin to hold back money. And in the case of an airline recently, the merchant acquirer had £45 held back to compensate the customers. When MFI went bust, it was something like £17 No, it was £19 that got paid back to customers. So the merchant acquirers, I don't know why and how they know, but they get a sign that something's going wrong. And if you've paid, let's say, with either CyberCard, they've got money. And sometimes when Habitat went bust, they, or certain stores did, they paid for orders to be completed. So they didn't compensate you the full price. They gave the company money to get the sofas made or whatever. And that was cheaper for them than to pay the full market price. And one of the things you said that I found quite interesting was that we are these days sometimes inadvertently abandoning the protection of Section 75 by buying things often online through third-party agents. What's going on there? What's what's happening? Well, Section 75 is a direct contract between the credit card customer and the credit card company. And it hasn't been amended to take account of secondary cards. So my husband has a card on my account. If he buys something and it goes wrong, he can't claim for compensation, nor can I claim for compensation for him. And it comes into play if you're buying a whole family's worth of air tickets. It may be if you're not travelling at the same time, they'll only compensate for the ones when you're travelling. And if you're buying theatre tickets, which is a big one, or hotel um, accommodation, it may be that the third party is not a direct contract. So you need to check online when you're buying it whether it is covered by Section 75. Thank you very much, Lindsay Cook. You can read her Money Mentor column in www.ft.com slash money. That's all from The Money Show this week. If you've got a story you'd like the FT Money team to follow up or a question to pose to our team of financial experts, get in touch. Email us money at ft.com, tweet us at FT Money, or comment on our articles online at ft.com slash money. We'll be back next Thursday at the usual time. Goodbye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.